concise, accurate, prolific, 17 books and over 250 articles, entertaining, poignant, thoughtful. Welcome, Michael Parenti. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I have to get hooked up first. Is, is it amplifying? You're amplified, sir. Everything is. Yeah. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Okay. A little better? Okay. Oh, it's a lot better. That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I. Uh, People always ask me, how did you come to write this book on Julius Caesar? And, uh, and I think it was my interest, in, um, my interest in Greek political theory and political philosophy. And then I started reading the Romans. They came up now and then. And I, I didn't think they could be anywhere as interesting as the Greeks. But uh, politically, maybe not philosophically or artistically, but politically the Greeks, uh, the Romans were quite fascinating and much more, even more interesting than the Greeks, if that's possible. Because I came to realize that ancient history is not so ancient, that it has a lot of things in it that sound very, very familiar to us that the late republic, which is what I'm writing about, which is roughly from, say, well, I go back to middle republic, right to some years after Caesar's assassination, say 133 BC to 40, 40, 35 BC, when Augustus comes in, second civil war. That period, you had all sorts of things happening. You had, for instance, Latifundia, as they were called. Latifundia is a, is a Roman, it's a Latin word. It means giant plantations that are controlled. It's a word that still exists in Spanish, as you know. And the Latifundia owners were driving out the small farmers and taking over the land and using slave labor to maximize their profits. The Egar Publicus, which was the public lands all in Campania, all around Rome, very fertile lands, for centuries had been farmed by small, independent, free labor farmers who vittled all of Rome, who were able to feed all of Rome. They paid a small rent because Egar Publicus was the public lands. They were public lands, but these farmers could lease these lands at a very, minimal price, uh, and, and, and managed to feed all of Rome. Now, to have farmers growing food, selling that food, feeding people, people buying the food, farmers making a living, and this aristocratic class on the top is not making a penny out of it. It was more than they could suffer, more than they could bear. And one of the sources of wealth in any society is the land. Land is one of the great sources of wealth. 
So what you had was this struggle going on, and this was one of the things that Caesar fought against, and one of the reasons he was killed. The struggle to drive these independent farmers off the land and take over that land and use the land for profit and use slave labor. And you did it several ways. War is what was the big thing, because the Roman infantry was made up of these small farmers. Uh, they were the core of it. You send them off to war, and you can, then their farms can't be kept up. You can take over the farms and buy them real cheap. Or you send your armed thugs in, and you just drive families off, and you steal the land, which is another thing that happened. Now, does that sound familiar to you at all? If you have any familiarity with Latin American politics, you know that's going on today in Latin America and in Africa. And actually, when Caesar arrives on the scene, it's already what happened. What Caesar and a few other reformists are doing is trying to get some of that land back. 133 with the Gracchi, Tiberius Gracchus and Gaius Gracchus. The Gracchi were trying to do it. Gaius was at 122 BC. Get, get some of that land back and redistribute it to poor independent farmers. It's something, it's a struggle that's going on in Zimbabwe right now with Robert Mugabe, with our white corporate capitalist American press unfailingly in every story telling you that those white landowners used to have the land and Mugabe is taking the land away from those white landowners and giving it to blacks and the production has gone down terribly. You see, when I start getting excited, that's when all the flashlights start. That's, it. that's the media for you. They always say, which is not true. What's happening now is a lot of that land was unused. What's happening? Yeah, there's been a drop in sales. There's been a drop in sales of cash export crops. That's what there's a drop in sales. But people are actually getting better fed now. People are actually doing some good, very good farming. The Africans know how to grow food. They were doing it for thousands of years before the Europeans arrived. So you got that same kind of misrepresentation today. So I thought that was very interesting. Another issue that came up, and another reason Caesar was killed, was the question of debt oppression. One of the things Caesar did when he was consul, and when he accumulated enough power and he was able to face this aristocratic oligarchy, is he canceled debt payments. He canceled about, oh, he canceled about, um, <clears throat> Well, Suetonius reckons about 25% of all outstanding debt was canceled. That there were others, there were Democrats and all who wanted him to cancel a lot more than that, but that's as far as he went on that issue. But still, his fellow aristocrats hated him for it and saw him as a class traitor. Rent control. I mean, the condition of housing in ancient Rome was terrible. Giant tenements, eight, nine stories high. Uh, the rents were so high because, because people had so poured into Rome. Uh, um, that families often had to double and triple up so a whole family would live in one room. The condition of these houses were terrible. Well, Caesar canceled all rents for one year, which, you know, just infuriated the, 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 the rich landlords, slumlords like Cicero and others like that. 
the condition of labor in, the, in, these, in, in Rome, the condition of labor was increasingly worsening as free independent labor was being driven off the land or being replaced by slave labor. <clears throat> these are all issues we face today. We don't have formal slavery in most countries, although the slavery still does exist in some places and countries. Um, but we certainly have indentured labor. We have people caught in, in the web of debt structure whose, whose labor is, is forfeited for, for years to come and the like. So, so, this is, so this was, again, a very relevant question. I'm saying ancient history isn't so ancient. The arrogance and the avarice of empire, I dealt with that also. Empire, let me, let me read to you, let me read to you what an economist, a conservative, this guy was a conservative economist by the name of Joseph Schumpeter. Joseph Schumpeter wrote this about the Roman Empire in 1919, okay? He wrote this almost 100 years ago. And this is what he said about Rome. And you tell me if it sounds familiar at all. He said, ancient Rome, that policy, that policy which pretends to aspire to peace but unerringly generates war, the policy of continual preparation for war, the policy of meddlesome interventionism, there was no corner of the known world where some interest was not alleged to be in danger or under actual attack. If the interests were not Roman, they were those of Rome's allies. And if Rome had no allies, then allies would be invented. When it was utterly impossible to contrive such an interest, why, then it was the national honor that had been insulted. The fight was always invested with an aura of legality. Rome was always being attacked by evil-minded neighbors, always fighting for a breathing space. The whole world was pervaded by a host of enemies, and it was manifestly Rome's duty to guard against their indubitably aggressive designs. Now, does that sound at all familiar to any of you? Another thing that characterized ancient Rome was deficit spending. You spent, you didn't tax the rich, you borrowed money from the rich, and we do the same. We're, we're borrowing money from the people we should be taxing. And Bush likes that whole idea of a big deficit. You cut the taxes on the rich, you increase your deficit spending. A deficit is when the government spends more money than it takes in in revenues. How can it do that? It can do that by borrowing money to make up that difference. That accumulated debt, and it borrows money by floating bonds to people, borrowing their money, and then paying them back over the years with interest, so that that becomes a source of investment and profit for the creditor class. That accumulation of debt every year, that, uh, th those accumulated deficits uh, every year is what is known as the national debt. The national debt now is what, $5 trillion? For a couple of years there, we actually had a budget surplus, and it looked like we might be 
reducing the debt. Uh, but Bush is very eager to intensify that debt. It, do, it performs several things. One, it's an un, upward redistribution of income. You then tax you, you tax you to pay these rich people. Fifty cents of every dollar that you pay in federal taxes goes for the military and the national debt. That include and everything you pay in Social Security and all that, putting that all together. In disposable income, uh, not taking in the entitlement programs, uh, it's more like uh, 80 percent, 80 cents of every dollar. A good 40 cents of that is just to service the enormous national debt. So 40 cents of every dollar you pay in federal taxes, you get nothing for it. It's money going right into the pockets of the rich. So it's an upward redistribution. The other thing that an enormous deficit does is it becomes an excuse for underfunding and starving and cutting back on human services, which is what they also want to do. So all of this should be, all of this should be uh, familiar to us. Now, how do, you, how do you deal with this history when there are these controversies? On the question of Caesar, the controversy was as follows. And I really get into the history. It's really fascinating stuff. The assassination itself, I reconstructed. I found it very fascinating, reconstructing the whole question of the assassination. And the tension in the politics that happened after, afterward is just as fascinating how how they were just uh, in, in this kind of interplay, uh, not knowing where they were going, not realizing that the Republic was really over. That was the end of 500 years of the Roman Republic. And now all you had now was, uh, all you were going to have after that was a, a thousand years of autocratic rule under em emperors. Um, the prevailing opinion of historians, ancient ones and modern ones, all of them, I'm talking about Cicero, who is the, the key historian of the, of the New Republic era. I mean, he was one of the players. And he also left a trove of letters and books and cases and speeches that he had made. Cicero. Sallust, uh, Dio Cassius, Plutarch, Suetonius, Appian, Valerius Patriculus, Maximus Valeus, and you can go on and on and on. All these Roman all these Roman historians agree. All the modern historians agree. All the historians in between over the ages agree that the issue was that the senators killed Julius Caesar because he was usurping power and they wanted to protect the Roman Republic. That was the argument. So the book is really a why done it. It's not a who done it. Actually, I tell people, well, it's a who done it. I have a new theory. It wasn't Brutus and Cassius who killed him. It was somebody standing on the grassy knoll who threw a spear. <laughs> and a bow and arrow and got him by the name of Lucas Harvis Oswaldus. And, um, and you know, you can catch people for a while. You almost got them and they're going, oh, well, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and uh, 
Actually, we, we, we know who killed Caesar. Okay. Um, the question of why, though, comes up. And that question of why is of immense historical significance. It was just all the things I was talking about now. Ancient and modern historians alike say that the senatorial assassins were intent upon restoring republican liberties. By the way, Caesar did take a good deal of that power. He now is not only consul, he was imperator, imperator perpetuus, perpetual dictator, emperor. He had actually taken that power. Emperor, though, meant commander in those days. Later on, it became to mean emperor, and it took on a distinct total autocratic meaning. But in Caesar's day, it meant commander. And he did accumulate, but, but he also, I argue, he also presented all these things to the popular assemblies. He started bypassing the Senate. He started challenging the Senate. He started undermining the Senate. And he needed that kind of power to fight back against this entrenched oligarchy. When any popular leader accumulates any kind of power, he will be condemned as an autocrat. And that is not only true of ancient Rome, that we see happening today. We saw Salvador Allende in Chile being called an autocrat, a Marxist who was undermining Chilean democracy and all. It was the most democratic country it was. So what did they do? They backed the Pinochet who destroyed democracy completely. That wasn't Allende's sin. His sin was that he was doing some redistributive politics. He was giving something back to the poor just as Caesar was doing. He was taking and he was infringing upon the limitless, unsatiable, avaricious interests of the very rich. Because there's only one thing the haves want, and that's everything. They want everything, and they don't see why they have to tolerate these kind of infringements. Now. And that was true, that's true. And that was, that was true of Noriega, even Noriega, if not him, his military, it was a leftist military. They had popular programs, they had social programs, education, clinics were starting, all sort of thing in Panama. And when George Bush pair invaded Panama, and the new government put in, the first thing they did was destroy all those programs, roll it all back, privatize everything, and make sure the poor were poorer than they'd ever been, and that they weren't developing some. That's the same with Hugo Chavez. That's the same with Slobodan Milosevic, who was a genuine socialist, who headed a party, in U a government in Yugoslavia, which was a coalition of four political parties, and was pushing social programs and trying to save the social democracy in Yugoslavia in a country whose economy was 80% publicly owned still. And all of that's been abolished, Yugoslavia. When Milosevic was, was taken out and declared a tyrant, a criminal, a demagogue, uh, a Serbian nationalist. I mean, here's this Bosnian-Croatian nationalism going bonkers and crazy, and the, and the moment he tried to defend Yugoslavia, he was called a Serbian nationalist, and unfortunately, many so-called progressive people on the left uh, bought into that. They bought into that issue and supported that war. It's incredible. They oppose a war that's launched against uh, a rich plutocrat 
reactionary terrorist Muslim like Osama bin Laden. They opposed that war and against a fascist, oppressive Taliban organization in Afghanistan. They opposed that war, which they should, which we all opposed. They feel free enough to oppose that war against Saddam Hussein, who used to be a CIA operative, who tortured and murdered every leftist, communist, progressive in Iraq and played with the CIA along the way, who got whacked anyway because he proved to be a nationalist and, 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 uh, and kept the oil industry under public ownership. They opposed that war too against this murderer and torturer as I opposed that war and we all did oppose that war. But, but against Yugoslavia, they bought into the propaganda because Milosevic had a communist lineage and he was declared the last Stalinist he was declared of this and that, and the and people on the there are any number of people on the left. I won't even talk, mention them by name, who while they opposed the finally opposed the bombings, they bought into that brief right up to the point of the bombings. They bought into that brief uh, because anti-Stalinism, anti-communism is the centrality of their politics. It is the passion of their politics, and they say they are on the left. Oh, they're against corporations. Oh, they think the WTO is bad. Oh, they think that it's too much power and these are troubling and terrible times. But when it really comes down to it, their passion is anti-communism. And if you can convince them that they're fighting a communist, they will fall in line. I'm talking about any number of liberals, social democrats, people who call themselves anarchists and trots, and, and other variations. That is the, they're, they're still settling scores from 1937 Moscow. Uh, it's a case of arrested development. And so they condemned Slobodan Milosevic. So they condemned, so, so the, 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 the uh, established media condemns Hugo Chavez. What is Hugo Chavez's problem in Venezuela? Well, I cannot pick up an article on Hugo Chavez and not see and not see some reference to his mercurial personality, to his um, unstable approach, uh, to his impulsive this or his autocratic tendencies. Um, what you have, what I'm saying to you is as follows, that every leader in the history of humanity, recorded history of humanity, who has ever done anything for the ordinary people, who has ever posed himself against the established interests of powerful wealth, any leader who does that is subjected to an ad hominem critique and attack. Noriega was worse than Hitler, uh, Saddam Hussein was worse than Hitler, and that was true, but, by, but, by this but it came 10 years too late, and they, uh, they forget to tell you that they were the ones who made him into the Hitler. Uh, Allende was threatening democracy. Allende, the descriptions of Allende in the New York Times are, are incredible. Twitchy uh, fellow, uh, uh, a nervous erratic. Uh, uh, Father President Aristide in Haiti was said to have a mental breakdown and was unstable. And Jesse Helms talked about his psychological problems and, and, and so forth. Milosevic was considered uh, crazy and uh, bloodthirsty and, and so forth, a power hunger. They're all power hungry, apparently. They're all represented as power hungry. Forgetting that any kind of reformer facing this kind of entrenched 
ruling class power has to, has to develop a countervailing power to effect some kind of change. But without failure, and, 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 and Caesar, and not just Caesar, I go into all the popular leaders before, from the Gracchi down to Supernius to Clodius to Caesar, all of them, all of them assassinated by this ruling class group. And they all had one thing in common. They were trying to do some land reform, some debt control, some rent control, some better wages for the people. That is what, that is what their real sin was about. And that is still the way it goes on today. Okay, can we get it right? That's it. So, So as I said, the prevailing opinion among historians, ancient and modern alike, is that the senatorial assassins were intent upon restoring Republican liberties by doing away with a despotic usurper. They were going to save the Republic against the despotism, despotism of Caesar. And in a way, they believed that. Because by definition, the Republic meant senatorial hegemony, senatorial dominance. The Republic meant that the popular assemblies were just footstools. Uh, they, could, they could, you know, give a rubber stamp now and then. Uh, the republic meant that, that, you, that you didn't have, that, 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 this, that this republic, this organization, this served our interests. And our interests, the interests of our aristocratic ruling class were the best interests for everybody. This would be the best for everyone. All individuals, all rulers, all classes believe in their own virtue. So they believed what they were doing was a very good thing and ultimately a good thing for you lowly, lowlifes. I mean, you couldn't be expected to know what your own interests were. You couldn't be expected to, to provide for yourselves. Isn't it so much better that you work as day jobbers for barely hand-to-mouth wages when you can get them or slaves? Isn't it better for you? Ultimately, it's really better. I mean, even slave, every slave class, slave-owning class thought, thought that they were doing their slaves good. I mean, you, the literature's full of references to this. Our own, our own antebellum slaveocracy, full of references to how good we treated those Africans. And look at the way, look at the way the niggers react to us after everything we've done for them. I got quotes that Whitelaw Reed gathered together when he traveled through the South right after the Civil War. Can you believe the way they acted after everything we've done for them? They run off, they disobey. Once they realize that the rule couldn't be enforced, they start disobeying us. They even go and join the Union Army and fight against us. Can you believe? How could they be doing this when we treat them so well? So do not underestimate the ability of people to rationalize um, very genuinely in the service of their own self-interest. The fact that these rationalizations serve their self-interest doesn't mean they're being insincere or hypocritical. It means they believe it all the more. And anyway, when push comes to shove, they also know that more for you means less for me. So why the hell should I give you more? Okay, this justification that they were saving the Republic, this is the justification that is offered by the assassins themselves. And what I do in this book is present 
an alternative explanation because that's what the evidence indicates when you actually hear them talking. What it is they hate about Caesar is the things he's doing. I say that the Senate aristocrats killed Caesar because they perceived him to be a popular leader who threatened their privileged interests. By this view, the deed was more an act of treason than tyrannicide. And it was only one instance in a long line of political murders against other popular reformers and leaders. The evidence is overwhelming in there. And what is remarkable is how the historians are able to uh, look the other way. How again and again, they think, they, they'll tell you that the Gracchi, that Tiberius Gracchus was a demagogue, that he provoked, that he was extreme, that he was unstable. Um, Gaius Gracchus was even worse, provoked. Plutarch is one, Plutarch is very odd. He actually personally describes them as very wonderful men, capable, respectful of people, um, intelligent, with insight, trying to make some changes and all. And then he lapses in the back and says, but of course, you know, they overdid it and so they were whacked. Not only were these popular leaders killed, but their followers, thousands, hundreds of their followers were massacred by the ruling class death squads. I have a chapter in here called Demagogues, in quotes, Demagogues and Death Squads. It's all very familiar. What really gets mind-boggling is how modern historians, modern classicists, also accept this view totally. And that makes you wonder, you know, uh, this whole Collingwood view. Collingwood has that quote about how historians from different times and different ages see history in accordance with the experience of their age. Now that's become almost a cliche for us. We all hear that. He said, Augustine looked at Roman history through the eyes of an early Christian. Tillemont looked at Roman history through the eyes of a 17th century Frenchman. Gibbons looks at Roman history in his great book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, from the eyes of an 18th century Frenchman. But you know what? That sounds really interesting. You know, with, from their own cultural perspective, their own presumptions, their own historical experience, they look at this and then they see things in it that give a verification to their own experience, like I'm doing, you could say. But you know what? They don't do that. What I discovered is they don't. I didn't find that at all. I found they all looked at it exactly the way Cicero wanted them to look at it. They all looked at it exactly the same way. Augustine's comments on the Gracchi Augustine's comments on Caesar's assassination are exactly the same as the assassins. They all looked at it from their same ruling class, wealthy class perspective, which cut quite across cultures and centuries and different societies and nationalities. They all looked at it remarkably the same. There was a prevailing orthodoxy. They all accepted, totally accepted the view that was propagated by Brutus and Cassius and Cicero, most effectively by Cicero. So there's, a, there's an interesting finding that Collingswood, Collingswood's dictum does not really obtain in this instance here. 
the very last thing I'll, I'll talk about, because I realize I'm going too long here. No? Okay. Oh, you asked for it. Well, I, I actually, this, this is all I just want to... Um, another thing all these historians have in common, and I'm not just talking now about Plutarch and, and, and Suetonius and Appian and Dio Cassius and Josephus and Tacitus and Livy and, and, and on and on. I'm talking about Professor Cyril Robinson, Professor Scullard, Professor Michael Grant. I'm talking about today's, the, the books that are still in print that are being used today. They all have in common, another aspect they all have in common, which is perfectly in fitting with this, is a denigrating view of the Roman common people. And again, they get this and accept it rather uncritically from Cicero. Cicero called the Roman people, he called them the urban feces, the scum, the, the, the shit of the city, the crap of the city, really, is what, what he called them. Shiftless, these are some of the terms he used. Cicero, this is what the Roman commoners were. The, the Roman commoners, the, the common citizenry were known as the pro, proletarii, or proletariat. That's what, the word is a Roman, is a Latin word. The Roman proletariat were made up, according to Cicero, I'm quoting, beggars, convicts, madmen, runaway slaves, foreigners, exiles, and another quote, they were a starving, contemptible rabble. He admits they're starving, but he blames it on them. That's just an un unpleasant, undesirable attribute of them. Never troubles himself to say, why are they starving? You, Cicero, who have eight estates and own slaves. You, your wife, who is, who is ripping, off, um, ripping off timber from the, from the publicly owned lands in Cabania and selling it on the market and not paying a penny to the state. And you, Cicero, the slumlord in Rome, charging these rent-gouging prices, uh, price-gouging rents, sorry, uh, price-gouging rents, do you think it might have anything to do with the impoverishment of these people and why they are slaving? Never ask that. Well, well, who were the Roman proletariat exactly? Well, this is what I found when I investigated further. This is what they were. They were masons. They were carpenters, shopkeepers, scribes, glaziers, butchers, blacksmiths, coppersmiths, bakers, Dyers, rope makers, weavers, fullers, tanners, metal workers, scrap dealers, teamsters, dockers, potters, and various day jobbers and others. They were, in fact, the toiling proletariat of Rome. Who the hell do you think did the work of Rome? Who do you think built all those things and brought in all those foods and built those wagons and built those roads and and made the clothing and made the pots and the pans and all. Who do you think did all what Veblen called the work of civilization? It was this idle, shiftless mob. And that image of the mob comes down right through to modern historians today. Juvenal called it panum et circenses, uh, bread and circuses, a phrase that has echoed down through the ages. They just wanted bread and circuses. They did get a free dough of bread. And bread, but that does bread wasn't enough. Man cannot live on bread, even on the physical level. Man and woman cannot, even on the physical, even on the mi minimal physical level, <clears throat> you need money. 
if you're living in Rome. You need money to buy cooking oil. You need money to get clothes. You need money to pay your rent. Uh, the bread, the bread dough may make a difference. It may just be that margin of difference between total starvation and, 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 and minimal subsistence. So the bread was an important thing. And Caesar kept the dole going. In fact, he cut the, he cut the dole back. There was about 250,000 people collecting on the dole, which was almost the entire free population of Rome. And he cut it back to 150,000 because a lot of the people on dole were slaves. What happened, the slave owners would come in and put their slaves on the dole. They would free them on paper so that they could be fed by the public. I mean, you see what I mean? The rich want it all. They want, they'll squeeze the last penny out of you. Um, <clears throat> so he had those people kicked off the dole. So that who, that's who the proletariat was. And yeah, some of them went to the games, but a higher percentage of the rich and well-to-do went to the games. They, they sat in the arena. They sat in the amphitheater. They had the best seats uh, right in the front, the front row so they could see all the, all the stuff happening. Um, and what did they do, this proletariat, this mindless, mad, shiftless, beggary-ridden, contemptible rabble mob? What did they do? This is what they did. They opposed kingships. They fought. They fought for 200 years from, oh, five, say 550 BC right through to 300 BC, fought against any kings. They overthrew the Etruscan kings. They made common cause with slaves on some occasions. They organized into guilds and unions, which were constantly getting out, being outlawed by the senatorial aristocrats. They demonstrated for land reform and debt cancellations. They supported Clodius, the Gracchi, and Julius Caesar, and other popular leaders. They opposed the right-wing dictator who came in in 80 BC. It's all written, it's all in the book here. Uh, Sulla, when Sulla brought his Roman legions into Rome, which was a violation of the ancient uh, rule, which is that no Roman army will ever come inside the city limits itself. Interesting. The, the, the proletariat stood there and fought them off, throwing rocks and debris at them and fought them with such a vehemence that the legion stopped and was stymied and couldn't get in for a while. They eventually, of course, did get there in. Far from being, far from being a mindless rabble, they were a democratic force engaged in class struggle. So that's what this book is all about. There's a lot of other things in the book, discussions about the rationales of modern historians regarding Roman slavery. I'll show you some quotes by some modern historians about how Roman slavery was very benign and slaves, many of them got manumitted, manumitted within five, ten years and a lot of them um, made their way up. And I, and, I, and I said, you know, looking at it, Roman slavery was not an affirmative action program. I'm sorry. So they have a whole discussion on that, I have a discussion on the plight of women in Rome and, and there's a lot of other things. So that's about it. Would you like me to read to you a passage on the assassination? Are you up for that? Okay. This is it's called preparation where you should be able to turn to the page, but I thought I had marked it off. Um, okay. On the penultimate 
on the penultimate day of his life, that means the next to the last, on the penultimate day of his life during the course of conversation while dining with Lepidus and a few other intimates, Caesar posed an unsettling question. What is the best sort of death? After his companions ventured various opinions, he himself commented that a sudden, unexpected end was the one he would prefer. That night, the story goes, his wife Calpurnia dreamed of seeing him lying in her lap with many wounds and streaming with blood. The next morning, much distraught, she implored Caesar not to stir from the house and to postpone the Senate session. The next morning was the 15th of March, the Ides of March. The Roman calendar was marked by the Calends, which was the first of every month, the Nones, which is the ninth or seventh, and the, uh, the Ides, which was the 15th or 14th, it varied from month to month. It was just a, a name of a day in the month, and it was the way they reckoned dates. They would say two days to the Ides or three days. It was a, they, do, they would do a backward reckoning, very complicated, and no one knows how they chanced upon this absurd and very cumbersome way of, of stating dates. So the next day was the 15th of March, 44 BC. <clears throat> Caesar's wife, uh, his wife's remonstrance gave Caesar pause, since she ordinarily was a very composed and level-headed person, not given to, quote, womanish superstitions, as Plutarch puts it. Plutarch himself was richly freighted with superstitions, presumably male-gendered. He tells us that just before Caesar's death, fire issued from the hand of a soldier's servant, yet left him unburned. All the doors and windows of Caesar's house suddenly flew open of their own accord as he slept. And an animal sacrificed by Caesar was found to contain no heart, a very bad omen because no living creature could subsist without a heart the great historian reminds us. Suetonius and Dio also, I don't want to go into the various things. Omens aside, Caesar already had serious misgivings about conspiracy, and I go into that. I have a whole, des a whole description of Cicero fawningly, total poltroonery. I mean, C Cicero was given to lying, you know, uh, poltroonery, I guess is the word, uh, given to, and he talked about, Caesar, we, you could not fear us, we love you, our hearts, we, we, we put our lives on, on, on the line for you. I mean, nauseating, cloyingly hypocritical. Meanwhile, Cicero, he, he, he was ecstatic over the assassination. Um, <clears throat> so let me get Now on the fateful morning of 15 March, uneasy about, about Calpurnia's dream, Caesar turned to Mark Antony, who had just arrived at his house and instructed him to go postpone the Senate session. But Decimus Brutus, not to be confused with Marcus Brutus, who's the famous lead of the conspirators, Decimus Brutus was even worse. He was one of Caesar's faithful generals, but at the end, his class interest prevailed over his loyalty to Caesar, and he joined with Marcus Brutus and Cassius. <clears throat> but Decimus Brutus, one of the few who had regular access to his residence, entered just as Antony was about to leave. On hearing of Caesar's decision, Decimus strongly urged a reconsideration. The senators had been waiting in attendance for some time, 
having been called into session by Caesar. Imagine their reaction if someone arrives and dismisses them until such time as Calpurnia should chance to have more pleasant dreams. He must not give his opponents further pretext of take, for, for taking umbrage, fueling the charge that his rule is insultingly arbitrary. Is it like Caesar to hide behind a woman's fears or give such weight to superstition? Even if he was strongly inclined to think the day unfavorable, it would be more fitting if he went to the Senate and himself announced that he was postponing the meeting to a later occasion. Caesar was persuaded. He allowed Decimus to walk him out of the house to where his litter bearers waited. As the litter moved through the gathered crowd, Artemidorus, a Greek teacher of logic and former tutor of Marcus Brutus, having caught wind of the conspiracy, sought to warn Caesar. Accounts vary. Some have Artemidorus running to Caesar's house after his departure, then failing to catch up to the litter bearers. Others have him reaching Caesar and urgently handing him a note outlining the plot. But given the press of petitioners, Caesar had no chance to read it. Others say it was someone else, perhaps a servant, who gave Caesar the note. All sources seem to agree that some vain attempt was made to alert him. Before entering the hall, well, I'm going to skip. This is where Caesar has that famous exchange with, uh, <clears throat> with Spurina about, oh, the Ides of March have come. Uh, is, the Ides of March is come, and nothing has happened. And, he, and as Spurina says, I, the Ides of March has come. He had predicted something. Beware the Ides of March. You remember that from Shakespeare and all that. Um, No personal guard accompanied Caesar, for his dignitas forbade that he should betray apprehension, especially before the very Senate that supposedly was pledged to guard his life. He is quoted as saying, there is no worse fate than to be continuously protected, for that means you are in, in constant fear. The conspirators stationed a backup complement of gladiators in the, adjoin in, in the adjoining adjoining, I'm sorry, in the adjoining theater, who could rush to their assistance should senators loyal to Caesar give them trouble. They were especially concerned about Mark Antony, a physically powerful man not easily routed. He would likely be situated close to Caesar. So they contrived to have Gaius Trebonius, Antony's acquaintance and one of the conspirators, detain him in conversation outside the hall. Upon Caesar's entrance, everyone rose to their feet. A group of senators quickly gathered about him in an apparently friendly manner. <clears throat> Caesar had scarcely occupied the ceremonial chair when one of them, Tilius Cimber, petitioned that his brother be allowed to return from exile. Caesar waved him aside. This was not the time for such a matter. They could pursue it on some other occasion. Others moved close, pretending to join in the request. Then suddenly Tilius laid hold of Caesar's robe, yanking it down from his shoulder, the signal for the assault. The first blow came from behind, delivered by a trembling Publius Casca. It missed its mark, grazing Caesar above the shoulder. He whirled about, seizing his assailant by the arm and wounding him with the stylus he had been using for writing. <clears throat> 
Caesar then bolted forward, only to be slashed in the face by Cassius. Desperately flaying at his attackers and issuing furious cries like a trapped beast, he took another blade into his side, then swift thrusts into his thigh, his back, and his groin, until he staggered and collapsed, some say, at the base of Pompey's statue. Pompey had been his enemy. Even then, the assailants continued savaging him with their daggers, some of them accidentally cutting each other in the melee. Suddenly, all was quiet. Caesar lay motionless, bleeding to death from 23 stab wounds. At this point, Marcus Brutus turned to the Senate assembly to reassure them that all was well. He would now set forth the reasons behind this act of tyrannicide. Brutus was a big one for saying this would be an act of we would kill a tyrant and we would explain it how we preserve the republic and everybody will love us for it. <clears throat> Certainly here was an apt venue for discoursing on the more unsavory imperatives of republican restoration. But the senators were in no mood for a civics lesson. Frozen in astonishment for the brief seconds of the onslaught, they began stampeding out of the hall, tripping over each other as they fled. Some fearing they might be the next victims, others just wishing to distance themselves from the murder and all its frightful implications. There were a number of senators who weren't unfriendly to Caesar's position, by the way. There were 60 conspirators, and we know about 15 of them by name. <clears throat> Brutus and his confederates followed them out, triumphantly brandishing their blood-stained weapons. Being still hot from their exploit, they marched as a body, not like perpetrators who thought of taking flight, but with an air of lordly assurance, calling to the people to reclaim their liberty and inviting persons of rank to join them. Some of the latter did enter their procession, acting now as if they too were authors of the bloody design and could claim a portion of its honor. In the empty meeting hall, Caesar's body lay crumbled in lonely silence throughout much of the day. Eventually, three of his slaves ventured in and, car and carted it away. Thus did Gaius Julius Caesar meet his sorry fate in his 56th year on the Ides of March, 44 BC. Forty years earlier, on that very day, a graceful, handsome, 16-year-old youth strode amidst a joyous gathering of family and friends who prayed that the divinity might fashion a brilliant destiny for him. It was a festival celebrating the threshold of spring on the Italian peninsula, when living things are touched by the sweet stirrings of nature reborn, and people lift their hearts in the hope of better times to come. And so we too, let's lift our hearts, not only in the hope of better times to come, but in the struggle for better times to come. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you, Mr. Parenti.